0: Hello, I'm Dr. Paul Sagar from the Department of Political Economy at King's College London. Today I'm talking to Dr. Will Sellinger, who is a lecturer in European history at University College London. He's also the author of the recently published Parliamentarism from Burke to Weber, which was published last year, 2019, with Cambridge University Press. So thanks, Will, very much for coming to speak to us today.
1: Uh, it's great to be here. Thanks. To you, Paul, as well. (laughs) Thank you. Um,
0: This is going to be just a a brief interview to give people a sense of what your new book is about. Um, So in your own words, what would you say the main arguments of the book are?
1: Well, that's a a good question. Um, I would say the main argument of the book is that liberalism, sort of the ideology we know of as liberalism, was essentially based on, in the 19th century, a certain constitutional theory. And this was the theory of parliamentary government. Um, Liberal authors like John Stuart Mill, Benjamin Constant, Alexis de Tocqueville, they thought the best way to achieve political liberty um, in a European state of that period was through a constitution based specifically on that of Britain, one in which there was a constitutional monarch and in which ministers, the sort of highest ranking executive officials, served in parliament and were accountable to parliament. Um, for, and in the book, I sort of, you know, I begin sort of by showing the kind of origins of this constitutional theory in the 18th century, um, looking at Britain, then also examining the French Revolution and I then sort of show its importance to liberalism as it develops. Uh, so that, I think, would be the main argument.
0: Great. So building on that, could you just outline for us the structure of the book itself, at least in brief?
1: Sure. Um, right. So the, so it really has three parts, the book. Um, and part one is about the origins of parliamentary government in Britain. That's in the first two chapters, take that up. And what I really wanna show there is how one quite well-known account of the English constitution from this period is, is that of Montesquieu. And Montesquieu argues that uh, the English constitution is a kind of paradigm of a free state. It's a state that has sort of political liberty as its aim. And the reason for this, Montesquieu says, is that the different parts of the English constitution are equal and they're separate. Um, That's the sort of logic of the English constitution, according to Montesquieu. That's the ideal of it. That's what it kind of the ideal it seeks to measure up to. And so in chapters one and two of the book, I try to show that there's also an alternative approach to the English constitution that develops during this period. Um, And it really begins from the perception that, first of all, the different branches of the English Constitution aren't separate. The the monarch's ministers are serving in parliament. They're using patronage of the crown to try to command a majority of the House of Commons. And that the reason for this is that the prerogatives of these different parts of the Constitution of England aren't equal. The House of Commons is becoming the most powerful part of government. And, I, and for the authors I look at in the first two chapters of the book, they think that this quite messy setup actually leads to liberty, to stability, to deliberation, better than the sort of Montesquieuian theory, if, if strictly applied, would. Um, this is a kind of slow development, right? And so it, it really is only in the sort of second part of the book, which is about the French Revolution, that um, a... That, that people really, I think, become clear in their minds that these are different constitutional models, that parliamentary government, um, a term coined during this period, is different than other models of a, of rep, of a sort of free constitution. Um, and so if the sort of key figures in the first two chapters of the book are David Hume, Edmund Burke, and the Swiss emigre uh, Swiss to Britain, Jean-Louis Delhomme, in the second part of the book, I look at Benjamin Constant, Germain de Stahl, Jacques Necker, um, and other such figures who are writing during the French Revolution. Um, and I also show how the theory of parliamentary government actually evolves during this period, as well as um, being kind of clarified. Uh, and a key figure there is Constant, who comes up with the argument that, uh, that the in his words, the king reigns but does not govern, right? So Constant, I think his big innovation is to make the case that this model could work with ministers as the highest-ranking executive officials. That the Kim king can take a step back, um, serve as a sort of ne plus ultra, a representative of the constitutional order, but that the king does not need to be actively involved in the political process. Ministers can be strictly separated from the king, Um, and you could still get a parliamentary government that functions. Um, And in the third part of the book, which is, um, I guess, chapters um, five and six, I look at how um, 19th century liberalism, I show the different theories of parliamentary government, which often but not always follow Constance's model that are advanced by John Stuart Mill, Alexis de Tocqueville, Walter Badgett, and other figures. And I really try to show that these authors thought yep. that the way to achieve a sort of flourishing liberal politics was through parliamentary government. Um, and the book concludes really with the discussion of the crises of parliamentary government at the turn of the 20th century. And it asks, you know, what is living and what is what is still living, if anything, from this older sort of constitutional approach.
0: Brilliant. Um, so what led you to write this book in the first place? How did you get interested in these themes and end up writing a whole book on them?
1: Uh, yes, let's see. That's a good question. Um, well, this this book was a dissertation. So it, it began when I was in graduate school. And although it began as it, it, it sort of uh, it evolved very slowly, I think, into this form. So my original interest was actually in something like political judgment uh, you know, how do political actors make make decisions, really? Like, what is this sort of mental process? Um, I was interested in Burke and in Tocqueville because they're both sort of interested in practical political judgment. And then I think the sort of first thing, though, that led me in this direction was this sort of realizing that Burke and Tocqueville were both in parliament. They were both elected. You know, Burke was in the House of Commons. That's sort of well-known, of course. Um, I think it's somewhat less well-known that, that Tocqueville spent um, over a decade in parliamentary politics in France. And so I began it became interested, like, well, how did this shape their thinking, serving in parliament? And then I realized, you know, John Stuart Mill was also in parliament. Benjamin Constant was in parliament. And so... The dissertation then sort of morphed into a a project about philosophers in parliament and how being in parliament shaped their political thinking. And that was that's that remains, I think, an important theme of the book. And so I talk a lot in the book about how they wrestled with issues like corruption, um, with gridlock. So these issues are still there. But I then sort of the next step was sort of me realizing that there was an even bigger story, which was the whole theory of a parliamentary government that the sort of constitutional model um, hadn't really been explored by that, that thoroughly by intellectual historians and that um, that in addition to being in parliament, Burke and Mill and Constant and Tocqueville were also, I think, important theorists of a parliamentary constitution, so to speak. And so that's sort of how the story developed. I mean, I guess I should also say, you know, that um, of course, as it's a dissertation, you know, I, I, this was not. This was uh, written in, you know, in dialogue with a lot of other people, and so I should probably um, give credit as well to supervisors I had. Um, you know, Richard Tuck at this period, my dissertation advisor, was writing *The Sleeping Sovereign*, which was, you know, and um, a big book about the sort of origins of modern politics. And I think that the ambition to do something like that, I think, was probably. One of the things pushing me in this direction Um, and Eric Nelson was writing the Royalist Revolution, which is all about the difference between the American and the British constitutional models. Um, And, you know, he was subjecting this issue to quite sustained investigation. And that, I think, also very much helped push me from thinking just about political judgment to thinking about Parliament, I would say. So that's sort of how the book developed, I think
0: fantastic was there anything particularly interesting or surprising that you found whilst you're conducting the research for this
1: book mm. well i guess i've already t- talked about the involvement of political thinkers in parliament i think that was the first sort of thing that really interested me um i guess one thing that i think also interested me that sort of flowed from that was the very fact i think that these specific institutional questions you know whether ministers. Serve in the legislature, that this is something that could inspire such sustained attention from these kinds of authors. Um, you know, historians of political thought, I think, have emphasized, tended to emphasize normative questions, you know, what is the nature of liberty or justice? Um, and they've tended to think about sort of the idea of the state. Um, you know, what is the nature of the modern state, the nature of sovereignty? Um, I feel like specific questions, you know, the difference between a parliamentary system and presidentialism, the difference between proportional representation and a first-past-the-post system, um, these kinds of issues, I think, have tended to be, you know, it wasn't something I would have ever expected, really, that these sort of authors would be interested in, and yet they were, and I think it also, I also came to think that it's kind of actually hard to answer the sort of larger normative questions if one doesn't get into these specifics. So I think that would be one thing that I think surprised me. And maybe one other thing was just, I guess, continuities over time, really, um, that, you know, I think I sort of tended to think that, well, the French Revolution changed everything. Um, And yet, then when I was looking at sort of debates over, let's say, parliamentary corruption in the 18th century, it turned out, There was actually a very similar debate over parliamentary corruption happening in France in the 19th century. Uh, You know, and Tocqueville actually wrote as much on this issue as Bolingbroke had, for instance. Um, And, you know, Francois Guizot was defending this in the same way that someone like Walpole or Hume was. And so I think partly these continuities are about similarities in institutions, um, constitutional monarchy the involvement of ministers in the legislature. But I think there's also a sort of persisting normative theory also, which is that parliamentary control over an executive is a kind of key to political liberty. And then that leads to the question of how to achieve that without weakening the executive too severely, which is a question in the 19th century as much as in the 18th century. And so 19th century liberalism, I came to think, is a lot... um, a lot more based in 18th century preoccupations, pre-French revolutionary preoccupations than I would have expected. So.
0: Fantastic. If it was up to you, how would you envisage this book changing the research field?
1: <sighs> wow, that is that's a good question. Um and as, as you show in a way it's and I'm I'm glad this isn't up to me. <laughs> but um Let's see. Well, I would say that um, I think actually the first way would just be to inspire more people to think about parliamentarism. And um, I just think it's such a big story the sort of rise of parliamentarism. Um, the fact that by the early 20th century, you know, most governments in Europe had a constitution based on broadly on the sort of English constitution, it then sort of spreads really throughout the globe. I mean, it's still probably um, one of the dominant constitutional models. And I and I think this was something that, you know, historians cared a lot about, you know, a century ago, um, when, you know, in part because Britain was then still a kind of hegemonic global power. Um, I think it's less Of interest now. But I think if you want to understand the 19th century, really, this is a sort of central theme. And it's one I do, I think I would say that I only kind of really scratched the surface of. I mean, there were movements for parliamentarism in Spain, in Germany, um, in Italy that I barely explore. I don't really explore parliamentarism in the, in the sort of, in the sort of British Commonwealth. Um, how did a parliamentary constitution arise in India? Um, And I think that this is just a sort of a major story of modern politics, um, possibly as big as sort of the history of republicanism or something like that, that is really still there to be explored. Um, And I think exploring it would also maybe change the way we think about liberalism and the way we think about democracy. Um, You know, I think, I don't know, when I fairly first started, studying this field, it was largely thought that democracy and liberalism just went together quite nicely. Now, it's sort of thought that, uh, well, they were clearly antagonists. I think that once we see the relationship of liberalism to parliamentarism, it becomes clearer how complex this question was and how there could be liberals on both sides of, of debates over democracy. So I think, yeah, I think within maybe the field of intellectual history, I would hope that my book would lead to a sort of recognition that this sort of history of parliamentarism is something that really deserves a lot more study than scholars have given it. I mean, I also think maybe in a sort of the related field of political theory, there's something I would hope my book might do, um, which is that there, I think there has tended to be a view that liberalism, you know, and this is something I think I certainly would have thought, you know, having read my Hannah Arendt and my Carl Schmitt Um, that liberalism was, is a, is a, is a theory, is a sort of worldview that's naive about politics. Um, that's not realistic, that doesn't realize these sort of, the sort of necessity of the sort of inescapability of coercion, the necessity of achieving political stability. And I think one of the things I would hope my book would show is that there was actually a sort of dominant liberal theory for a very long time that actually was quite preoccupied with politics, um, and with the, um, with the necessity of, of liberal politics while under a sort of capable state and while thinking hard about issues of political stability so that liberalism, there might be a sort of more of a realistic core to liberalism than, than I think scholars have, have, have tended to maybe think, and that this could sort of lead to a, an interest in that in that issue as well
0: that's fantastic my, my final question was going to be uh, what if anything might be the enduring significance mm. to readers of your book and i think you've uh, you've actually just given us a fantastic um, answer <laughs> to precisely that question so will uh, thanks very much for, for taking the time to do this interview all right
1: thank you paul
0: well, no worries. And for listeners, that's uh, uh, Will, Dr. Will Salinger, and the book is Parliamentarism from Burke to Weber, and you can get it from Cambridge University Press. Thanks very much. Bye, Will.